0: Hello, I'm Tom Thorpe, and you're listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association. The WFA is the UK's leading Great War History Society. It is dedicated to furthering interest in the First World War. We have over 60 branches and 6,000 members worldwide. For details on the association and local branches near you, visit our website, westernfrontassociation.com. On this first edition of the podcast, We shall visit the light cruiser HMS Caroline, the last surviving warship that fought at the 1916 Battle of Jutland, investigate servicemen who signed a visitor's book at a tea stall on Peterborough East railway Station, speak to historian Gavin Hughes about his history of Irishmen who fought in the Great War, and talk to PhD candidate Michael Woods about his research into how British generals learnt from their experience of battle in 1915. Throughout the show, we shall take a tour round HMS Caroline. The Caroline is the last surviving ship that fought at the epic naval battle of Jutland. I visited the Caroline in October last year and was shown round by the ship's curator Victoria Miller. I started our tour by asking Victoria to introduce herself.
1: Yes, my name's Victoria Miller and I'm the curator of HMS Caroline. Um, I've been in post about six months now. Uh, we've been open since June this year. And um, yes, we're open to the public at the minute now um, until the 23rd of October. And then we're going into dry dock for a few months and then reopening um, in February, all being well, in 2017.
0: Well, we've come several, several decks down. Victoria, where are we?
1: Yes, we're in Caroline's number one engine room. Um, in front of us, um, the large um, piece of equipment, if you like, right in front of us, is the condenser unit. Um, either side of that, where we're standing um, on our left and right, um, are Caroline's cruising turbines. They were the smaller turbines that she had. Um, they were effective for when she was just out in the sea, not having to go at major speeds, cruising along, as the name suggests. She also had um, larger turbines then um, that we can see um, next to the cruising turbines to our left and right and these enabled Caroline to achieve a speed of up to 30 knots um, which was no mean feat um, in those kind of days. Um, the reason why um, Caroline had these turbines um, enabled her then to um, and go in pursuit of um, the enemy and go ahead of the main battle fleet as she did at the Battle of Jutland. So essentially she was ahead of the main battle fleet scouting out looking for any um, sign of the enemy.
0: So she would be used as as a form of reconnaissance, early warning but also spotting opportunities for the main battle fleets to engage with the enemy.
1: Indeed yes, one of her main things was to protect the fleet especially from torpedoes.
0: We're just passing number two engine room Victoria, how many people would have been down here when the ship was at full speed?
1: Well, at the Battle of Jutland or something similar to that, like when the ship was at action stations, um, certainly the engine rooms here would have been a real hive of activity. Um, Caroline had um, under 100 engine room staff or men, if you like, so um, a lot of men dedicated to um, powering the ship. Um, Caroline had um, just under uh, 300 men um, on board um, during the First World War, so that's a lot, um, a, a significant proportion of men dedicated to this heart of the ship, um, not only in the engine room here, but in the boilers. Um, The boiler rooms now, um, unfortunately, were removed um, in the 1920s, um, but thankfully we still have the engines here. Um, These are original to the ship, um, original Parsons turbines, and they're very unique um, to have these type of turbines still in situ on a ship like this.
0: Victoria, where are we going next?
1: Um, we're going to head through now to the officers' quarters on the lower deck. Um, we'll have a look at some of their cabins to see where they slept and also into the wardroom to see where they had their recreation time.
0: So we've come down to where the officers would have lived, and I'm in one of the small cabins, and there's a bed which is by a porthole. Um, it has a sort of a, a guard to stop the uh, occupant falling out, but also there appears to be a bath attached to the ceiling. What was the purpose of that?
1: Yes, um, each of the officers' cabins would have um, contained one of these. Um, uh, As we can see here, um, it's actually located on a shelf above which keeps it out of the way um, when the officer wasn't using it. Um, It was essentially used for um, washing, so um, small-scale washing. So the officers did have um, baths as we know them as well down in their bath place that they could use if they were having um, a main bath. Now, um, fresh water... was monitored and there were fresh water tanks above the baths in the officers baths area Um, but usually they would have tried to keep um, their use of fresh water to a minimum so um, they wouldn't necessarily have had a major bath every day so these kind of little smaller baths if you like these metal baths um, in each cabin um, enabled them to freshen up Um, especially considering the officers um, would have dressed formally for dinner every night um, every day so um, they would have been coming back to their cabins to get ready um, for those events on board.
0: Leaving HMS Caroline for the moment, we turn to the second item in today's show. Peterborough Archives are seeking to identify servicemen who signed their names and left messages in two visitors books that were located in a small cafe on Peterborough East Railway Station during the Great War. Leading this Heritage Lottery funded project is Beverly Jones, First World War Project Officer at Peterborough Archives. I spoke to Beverly about her project and asked her to tell us about the Vista books.
2: Well, we're very, very fortunate that we have these two slim volumes. Um, they're just two simple books that um, come from 1916-1917, and they were belonged to the Women's United Total Abstinence Council. And they were a group of ladies that were um, working throughout the war to provide shelter for the men, uh, somewhere to have a cup of tea, a cup of coffee, absolutely no alcohol. That's um, what they were um, abstaining against. And they set up a tea shop um, on Peterborough East Station. I believe there's also one on the North Station as well. And um, when the men went in to sort of while away the time between trains, etc., the ladies there um, encouraged the men to sign um, the books that they had.
0: Wow. And so how how big are they? Are they sort of A4, the size of, um, I suppose, I'm just trying to get an idea of what they would actually look like?
2: They just uh, look like two simple exercise, sort of hardback exercise books, actually with black covers, and um, they're A five size. And within them, there are over five hundred and ninety entries.
0: And I gather from from our previous conversations that you said there were some smutty remarks who, um, <laughs> um, from soldiers who were complaining about the the, the tea ladies.
2: Well, not complaining, I think they were sort of complimenting them um, sort of by well, by our sort of standards today, probably quite tame, but certainly it 's quite interesting to read uh, lots of entries in there, some just a simple sort of signature, others you know many messages of thanks and gratitude, but just one or two um, little things that pop up um, There's a a sort of Private Rogers, for example, says that he called in the soldiers and sailors' rest on February the 24th and he enjoyed a splendid plate of ham and two lovely cups of coffee and the ladies in attendance were very smart. (laughs) So that obviously impressed him as much as the ham. Um, We have another one that's quite a cheeky entry, really, and this is from... um, Uh, where he refers to um, quite a nice poem he's written. He says, "Um, "'Twas on a Thursday morning on my way back from Dundee, I called at the soldiers and sailors for some grub and also tea. The service there was delightful, the servant better still, and the restful hour I spent there, a spot in my memory shall fill.'" So it gives a little bit of an insight to, you know, some of the people that were passing through during that time.
0: Because it was really interesting from what you said earlier, it was um, it was not only soldiers who were passing through Peterborough. I think you had quite a wide divergence of sort of nationalities and also um, branches of the armed forces.
2: We do, and I think that's what makes this particularly interesting, Tom. It's um, predominantly army, um, which of course at that time did include also the Royal Flying Corps. There's entries for that too, but we have quite a few from the Navy, Royal Navy, the Royal Naval um, Volunteer Service as well. We have clergymen from Manchester, a couple of policemen from Warwickshire, no idea what they were going, you know, passing through and what they were doing, but we'll find out more. We also have an entry, we believe to be one of the ladies that would have been serving the um, servicemen, Christabel Layton, and she writes quite a a long page where she's trying to encourage um, a young soldier to come and sign her book, but he prefers to fall asleep in the chair. Um, we've got messages um, that are written w- with French, uh, a little bit of Welsh, it certainly tested our skills for research, um, Latin references, um, there are some amazing sketches, there's a wonderful one of Charlie Chaplin, um, we haven't been able to find out anything about Private Woods that drew that yet. Um, but I think a lot of the writing as well, we've got very copper plate, elaborate writing, and then we've got people that have just signed themselves simply as a farm boy from Essex. Probably one of the most interesting as well. We've got um, quite a number of civilian, a lot of merchant navy, um, and an amazing entry from a, a group of trawlermen that, that detail an account of being sunk off the coast, um, being looked after kindly by the Germans who sunk their, their boat, um, but then did take them back near to the you know to be picked up by a British submarine. They were returned to the coast up in the northeast, and then that's how they made their way down to Peterborough station.
0: Wow that's amazing. Now I understand that your your some of the research you're doing is actually seeking to connect um modern day relatives with um their ancestors who who signed that book.
2: Am I, yeah am I... that's um yeah, absolutely. I mean, the whole, whole point of it really is to try and trace as many family members as we can. So we can sort of say to them, you know, on this day, this is where your relative was, this is what they were saying. And I think when people we've traced 27 families so far, I think when people see that that sort of writing, especially if they've written quite a nice lengthy message, something tangible, um, it's just nice to be able to give them that information about the, the relative on that day.
0: That that's and so where can people actually see the um, the book? I think you've got a website, and how can how should people get in in touch with you if they if they have any connections to Peterborough Station during the during the um, Civil war.
2: Yeah, we've got a website, it's um, Peterborough. Well, www.peterboroughww1.co.uk and if you have a look on the website, the books have been um, they've been digitised, so they're all online, you can actually flip through each page, it opens as a book, and if you click on an entry, a typed transcript will come up so that you can read it. So, um, some of them, obviously, they're 100 years old now, but also they're um, not always easy to read. And we've had an amazing group of volunteers that are working with us, and they're the ones that have done all the transcripts, description and are carrying out the research there's also a page on there that local historians have written other articles about peterborough in the war so it'll tell you a little bit more um but that's where you'll be able to either look at the actual book itself even if you think you may not have a relative you know it's still a lovely thing to look at but you can search put your name in and see if you know the name comes up The um, research is ongoing, so at the moment we're sort of three-quarters of the way through the book. So it might be if there's nothing there, we just haven't got to that that particular serviceman yet. So it'd be great if people could check out the website, see if they recognise anybody, but particularly follow us on social media. Um, I don't know know if you've got a Twitter account or you're on Facebook. If you can share and like our information... We're releasing the information 100 years to the day that those servicemen pass through our station. Um, and the further we can spread that information out across the country, you know, via social media, the more chance we've got, really, of trying to get relatives.
0: Beverly, have a great day. Thank you for your time.
2: And you. So, nice talking to you, to you Tom. Thank cheers. you. Bye. Bye.
0: I'm Tom Thorpe, and you're listening to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association. We now return to continue our tour on HMS Caroline. So we've arrived at the stern of the ship and we've entered a very nice little set of rooms with a nice little stove, a chair, typewriter, table, and I notice a galley actually serving um, meals. So where are we now?
1: We're located now in the captain's quarters, and you're very right in saying there's quite a nice little suite of rooms here. Um, The captain had the most amount of personal space on board, um, so he's got um, a dining cabin... Um, a day cabin here which was kind of like an office come sitting room, um, his own bedroom and then his own ensuite. so he was the only person on board that had his own personal bathroom. Um, even the officers um, on the lower deck below us here, um, they would have had to share the bath space so um, it was a very privileged um, space to be. Um, however though you'll note that the um, dining table, um, is, there's a meal set for one on it. Um, so again it could be a bit of a lonely existence for the captain. Um, he could could invite officers to join him to dine if he so wished but more often than not he would have dined alone um that division between um, him and the rest of the the men on board was important because ultimately he was the man in charge um you'll notice here um in the um spaces that we're in and um, there's a little hints to the captain's personality so on um Uh, above the desk in the day cabin for example um there are a number of pipes and in the bath area there's a number of toothbrushes um which he had one for every day of the week so he was a very methodical man um his name was captain crook um this was his first sea going command um he was relatively young for a captain at the time um 39 years of age and this was his first major um command if you like and um he really did want to you know Set a certain tone and to have order and discipline um, when required on board. Um, the National Museum of the Royal Navy um, actually has um, the captain's order book, and in it he details how he wished the ship to be run. So it's really useful to be able to access those kind of personal records um, to get a real idea of, of the people that were on the ship during the Battle of Jutland and the First World War.
0: And how many captains were there of HMS Caroline?
1: Um, during the First World War there were two, so Captain Crook um, from the, the December 1914, he was on the ship from then um, into 1917, and then he was taken over by Captain Leggett. So um, two during the First World War. Um, some of the personal accounts we've got um, give a real insight into the captains on board the ship. Um, we have the diaries, um, access to them um, from William Crick, um, which are stored in Leeds University Special Collections. Um, William Crick was a boy telegraphist on the ship during the First World War, and he makes um, a few notes about Captain Crick. Um, again, how he was very disciplined and liked order, and that kind of thing. And an interesting the account he gave at the Battle of Jutland was the fact that the captain was cool as a cucumber on the bridge so the men had a real respect for the captain as well. Um, interesting then when he left um, Captain Leggett that took over um, uh, William Crick notes that um, the various um, uh, rounds that the captain did if you like of the ship to check everything was running smoothly. Um, Leggett's um, rounds were actually shorter than Crick's so maybe he was slightly less of a disciplinarian if you like so that's quite, quite interesting to know.
0: The third item on the podcast is an interview with Gavin Hughes about his recent book Fighting Irish. Gavin is a historian and archaeologist at Trinity College Dublin. Gavin, welcome to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast. Hello there, Tom. Well, Gavin, tell me what the book um, Fighting Irish is all about. It's really an attempt to try and tell the
3: story of all the Irish regiments in the First World War, no matter um, what battalion or squadron they came from. So it's a an attempt to tie all the um, divergent aspects of the Irish military society together.
0: And this covers not only the units raised um, as volunteer units, obviously the famous 10th, 36th and 16th Divisions, but also the regular and yeomanry units that served in the British Army before the outbreak of hostilities in 1914.
3: Yes, very much so. Um, because one thing that struck me whenever I was doing um, research many, many years ago was the amount that... Actually, cavalry regiments were kind of dismissed as being somehow not as important as the infantry battalions. And I kind of felt sorry for them, so I kind of felt
0: something had to be done for that. And I suppose this is a very difficult question to answer, but what do you think the overall contribution was um, of Irish soldiers um, to the Great War and the Allied and British war effort um, across the duration of the conflict?
3: Well, I think it was tremendously important because from the regular Irish regimental perspective, there was a tremendous pool of experience and military talent. And then that gets translated to the volunteer aspects, which also they end up being, I think, by 1918, you know, almost elite divisions. It's arguably um, (laughs) the case, as we say, that obviously with the German breakthrough, they end up getting an awful lot of criticism. But I kind of think that they fought extremely hard um, during the German breakthrough. Other you know, divisions may not have fared so
0: well. Indeed. And I suppose it's, it's interesting to think that often the Irish contribution to the, to the British army in the war, if it's sometimes overlooked both in the United Kingdom and in the Republic of Ireland, why do you think that's, that's so? I think
3: there's a sense of awkwardness which developed over the last 100 years where, from a British perspective, um, we didn't really necessarily like to talk about the irish contribution in case it caused offence and from the southern irish perspective there was a sense of amnesia about what exactly the role of irish troops was in the great war and i think there's a reconciliation on all fronts in that and it's i think it's a sense of goodwill abounding
0: about embracing what the irish soldiers did in the first world war finally gavin i'm sure this will be of interest to all our listeners where can they get the book for, obviously, Christmas <laughs> birthday presents for all members of the family? <laughs> they can get it from Waterstones, from Easton's, and from Amazon. <laughs> Gavin, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure, Tom. Thank you. For the final time today, we return to HMAS Caroline to conclude our tour. Right, we've come downstairs, and we are in what appears to be a cafe. I gather this is a cafe that is used today, and it was used um, 100 years ago when the Caroline served in the First World War.
1: Yes, um, today it is used as our cafe. It's a great space for our cafe. It's it's quite a large open space here um, for us to have um, a cafe during the day and also events in the evening if anyone wants to rent it out as well. It's a space that can be used for that. Um, We're on the lower deck here um, at the forward end of the ship and traditionally this would have been during the first world war one of the key mess areas on board the ship Um, so we're standing here it looks quite spacious and empty but um, the space would have been filled quite quickly by um, around just under 100 men so imagine um, having all the the men packed in here with their hammocks slung Um, we have tables set out to look uh, give an impression of the mess tables that would have been here Um, but certainly it would have been a very packed cramped space, um, very different to what the captain and the officers would have experienced. Um, The men would have operated um, using these mess tables, so they would have been a mess system. So there would have been um, somebody nominated from each mess table to go to the galley and collect the meals for the day. Um, In this area as well, you'll see there's a number of lockers, so each man would have had a locker. Um, It's a relatively small locker, it's not got a lot of space in it. And in there they would have stored um, things like their hat box and also a ditty box, which was a wooden box, small wooden box, that they would have used to carry things like their personal letters from home, maybe a Bible, cigarettes, that kind of thing. So really, um, they don't really have a lot of um, personal space um, on board. Um, We're also standing here and we can see some of the hammocks that are rolled away um, uh, in preparation for the day ahead. So the men had their own personal hammock with their own name on them and they were responsible for packing it away when not in use and then slinging it when required um, for, for, for sleeping as well.
0: So men not only slept in here, you can actually see the hooks where the hammocks were, were strung from, but they actually ate as well. And would they have actually occupied this space? So if I was part of this table here, I would have known my mates and we would have actually had this would of be our social space for the entire voyage.
1: Yes, you would have been allocated a mess and you'll see here on um, the shelves here around the space that um, all the coffee, sugar, um, tea containers and everything else have a number attached to them, so say for example number 8, so they all linked in with their mess number um, so that you know whose um, crockery and everything if you like belongs to who, so it was, it was very useful that way.
0: Very intimate.
1: Yes, it was. It would have been. Um, now, during um, the First World War, as I say, there was just under um, 300 men on board, about 289 approximately. Um, then um, in uh, when the ship, after the First World War, um, she did a tour um, out at the East Indies Station. Um, she was sent out there, um, located mainly around Bombay and that kind of area, um, flying the flag for the British Empire, if you like. And There, um, the crew um, increased from just under 300 to around 350 men. So an extra 50, 60 men um, in this cramped location uh, would have been um, a major impact on people living here. And Also, bear in mind then, um, the climate would have been much different to the North Sea during the First World War. It would have been a lot hotter on board the ship. and There are counts of men reporting how sweltering it could get, um, obviously being in a steel ship. Um, even when we're here um, in a summer's day, if you feel alongside the bulkheads, um, you can really feel um, the heat of the sun coming through. So imagine then the space filled with a 100 or so men. It would have got quite humid and uncomfortable.
0: And on top of that, you've got engines pouring out a lot of heat and probably very little ventilation.
1: Yes, indeed. Um, there are reports of men... Um, going up onto the the decks above for air and things like that. So um, it would have been welcome relief to be able to get out onto the open air um, for a break of what was happening in the lower decks below, which could get quite sticky.
0: Our final interview today is with PhD candidate Michael Woods. As part of the WFA's commitment to further research into the Great War, it has established a scholarship scheme to give small grants to students undertaking doctoral research into aspects of the First World War. One of those students that the scheme has been able to support is Michael, and I spoke to him about his research. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Um, I gather you're a a PhD student at the University of Wolverhampton. Please do tell us what your uh, PhD's um, looking at.
4: Yeah, hello, Tom. Yeah, I'm at the University of Wolverhampton. Uh, I went there primarily because of the quality of First World War um, teaching that's there. Um, You're probably aware that Stephen Buds is there, Spencer Jones, Gary Sheffield... Um, And I'm studying the Battle of Festa Bear, particularly um, sort of the operational development of the British uh, Expeditionary Force and any lessons learned in that battle. Um, I found out a number of years ago that there was really no sort of book on Festa Bear. There's plenty on, you know, Nerve, Chappelle, Luce, Luce. and even Alber's Ridge, but um, I sort of there was a sort of gap in the marketplace, if you like, and I and I felt it was worthy of study. So, um, so that's what I'm doing. Uh, it's been really interesting. It's the uh, first large-scale night attack uh, by Second Division, um, so that made it interesting, and it really does sit um, in a change of operational methods. It's um, uh, particularly in, in terms of the artillery. Um, by the British Army. We go from hurricane bombardments at Neuve-Chapelle and the same again at Orbers and then we start to learn from the French and it's, uh, it's, we go for a more methodical bombardment um, during the night. Um, obviously we've got the Indian Corps participating as well and the Canadians come in right at the end. So for a number of reasons I found it a fascinating and um, uh, almost a forgotten period of um, study of 1915.
0: Um, Michael, can you tell us a bit more about the Battle of Vesterberg? Because um, I'm, it's not a, an engagement I'm familiar with.
4: Yeah, well, I mean 1915 continues to be, um, you know, the, the sort of forgotten year of the war. Um, and I, I'm not quite sure why that is. Um, there's only sort of two or three books on the Battle of Luce, which was, you know, a fairly large engagement, obviously in the first use of gas, etc. So, Festubert Bear is, is the sort of third attack by the British Expeditionary Force in 1915. We're really under severe pressure by the French. Um, Joff and Foch are putting a lot of pressure on um, Sir John French and, and, and Haig, who's in charge of First Army, to launch an offensive to help them while they're, trying to, um, they're launching battles at Artois and Champagne. So it's us trying to do our bit to support the French.
0: And what, what, what have you found in your research so far?
4: Um, yeah, I sort of touched on it before, really. Um, it's, it's the first night attack. Um, you know, night attacks get, do get a mention in the Battle of the Somme. Um, obviously, we're celebrating the, uh, the centenary of that at the moment. And um, sort of in, in the middle of July, the British Army launched night attacks to try and change their operational methods for success. Um, but we did do this. We did have a go at a night attack in, in Festa Bear. So um, for one reason, that's worthy of study. Uh, and also, as I mentioned before, you know, this change of artillery methods. So there's, 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 a, lot to, there's a lot to go at. Um, you know, I found it fascinating. And it, it's, it's trying to put that into context of where the British Army is trying to, this continual desire to learn, change their operational methods to break the deadlock of trench warfare.
0: Because what's really interesting, you look at uh, Neuve Chapelle with the hurricane bombardment, which lasts for yeah. forty minutes. Then you've got yeah. Orbers Ridge a month later, and you've you've, yeah. you've got a mine, and you've got radio communication. Admittedly, it's a failure. And in festival you're seeing a different method of attack. So the British seem to be learning very quickly, very early, and trying different things, which really goes against sort of the blackadder view of the of the, of the war.
4: Absolutely, and and that's you know, there's one thing. Um, I, I, I will absolutely, um, you know, argue strongly about it. it is that it's a continual desire to learn. Um, you know, we've got two quite um, interesting army uh, divisional commanders. We've got um, Horn, who's commanding 2nd Division, and he, he, he sees, you know, let's have a got this night attack, very, very ambitious at the time, very difficult to organise. Then we've got Goff coming in with a 2nd Division. And um, certainly what I'm learning about his attack, they have quite a lot of success, actually. Um, and they really do chase their own bombardment. Um, it's, it's a dawn attack, and you, you can see there's certain battalions that are right up behind their own bombardment and, and into the German trenches very quickly. And then there's certainly his um, chief of staff, which is a guy called Gatthorne Hardy, is promoting some of the successes throughout the division after the attack. And ensuring that that learning is passed on so um, i'm very much of the view that um we are trying to learn all the time and
0: what, what's your time scale for completion i know it's a drilly question that phd students yeah. hate to be <laughs> yes, asked
4: absolutely well bearing in mind that i am um you know i have a full-time job i'm a i'm a police officer a, a detective and i do work some long hours sometimes so it is really difficult and i have a young family as well i've got a five-year-old so um i'm not making my excuses but um, I'm, I'm hoping um, another couple of years. I think I've got up to seven, and I'm a sort of, and I, I think I'm about half 50%.
0: Michael, thank you very much for your time.
4: Nice talking <laughs> to you, and I wish you every success.
0: You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition.